Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there, blind, for three days, and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I spent a brief time as a program assistant at Pathways School, which was a day treatment facility for children with severe behavioral and emotional disorders that was part of a special services cooperative in Belleville, Illinois. It wasn't the kind of school that had metal detectors at the door at the time, but it was the kind of school that had a padded isolation room or two and trained all of the staff and teachers in non-pain compliant restraint and the ability to de-escalate crisis situations, both of which we had to use on a somewhat regular basis. 
And so we were trained also in how we might be able to enter into the hearts and minds of the students that we were serving in order to help them find a restored sense of self and of their humanity, especially since many of the behaviors and emotions that were labeled disorders were typically not born out of a vacuum. And so one day we got to learn from Dr. Larry Brentro, who is the author of Kids Who Outwit Adults and who is the head of Reclaiming Youth International. He described how kids with severe behavioral disorders who had basically burned every bridge they'd ever known might possibly establish pathways back to redemption through what he calls the circle of courage. Each child could possibly experience restoration as they develop a sense of mastery, generosity, independence, and belonging. If they can answer, what am I good at? What do I have to give? Where do I fit in? And do, what I, do I have what it takes to make it? Then these young people have the tools to grow and thrive beyond the labels that had been applied to them. The circle is much simpler than the obstacles that each kid has to overcome in order to find the answers to these questions, of course. That is a painful and arduous process of healing. And during the session with Dr. Brentro, he talked about the divine narratives. These kids had basically nuked every relationship that... And they may at some point have asked, have I gone too far? Is there any hope for me? I know I've done terrible things, and I think I'm past the point of no return, which is a bleak and desperate feeling. If there's any sense of spirituality in the child, they may also ask, can God even love me anymore? Can God forgive me for what I've done? We were serving in cooperation with a public school system, and so the teachers didn't get to bring up that topic. But when Brentro's students asked, it opened a door for him. And he would say, I believe, yes. Let me tell you a story about a man named Saul. He did some terrible things, and that's exactly why God picked him to tell the story of his love. That's a story we get to hear today, and that leads to our first lesson, and that is sincere and devoted faith when wrongly directed, can be destructive. Sincere and devoted faith, when wrongly directed, can be destructive. In the scripture this morning, we read how Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so he went to the high priest and he requested letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. He wanted to bring them, men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven shone, and he fell to the ground, hearing a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men with Saul were speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. And so Saul picked up himself from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. His companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Saul was present at the death, the stoning of Stephen. When the newly born church was starting to experience the strain of some institutional sprawl, the Holy Spirit led them to a division of labor. The feeding program was taking up a lot of the time of the apostles, who would otherwise dedicate that time to preaching and teaching. And hungry people still needed to be fed. That was important. So in Acts 6, Stephen is chosen as a man who is full of faith and the Spirit to help lead this ministry that provides food to widows. 
In addition to feeding people, Stephen did miracles and wonders and taught with authority. The same people that hated Jesus really didn't like that Stephen was growing in favor and acclaim, and so they plotted to kill Stephen too. By the next chapter, Acts chapter 7, after giving a rousing witness to the person and works of Jesus Christ, the crowd stoned Stephen to death, and we read how the stoning parties dropped their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul who looked on. Later in Acts, the man who had been named Saul describes how he approved of the murder. And because he was a Pharisee, we don't know if Saul was actually in a position allowing him to authorize the stoning or if he was just a trusted onlooker thinking to himself, yes, this seems like a good idea. There's no clarity on that, but what's clear is that his hate for Christ's followers was strong enough to harbor murder in his heart. Paul describes some of his religious pedigree that led him down this angry path. In Acts 22, he explains how he was a Jew born in Tarsus in the city of Cilicia and brought up and educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As Gamaliel's student, he was carefully trained in Jewish laws and customs. He became very zealous to honor God in everything he did, and he persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death arresting both women and men and throwing them in prison. Paul was well-trained, versed, known, and grounded in a system that tolerated, then fixated on eliminating and isolating those who didn't hold the same beliefs that he held. It was a cancel culture to the extreme, and it left no fringe options available to hear within the echo chambers of their own philosophies. And those who held this philosophy incarcerated or killed those which they believed to be a philosophical threat. Now hear me, not every religious person was like this in Saul's time, and the attempts to control through isolation and threat were not unique to the religious people. Rome had plenty of that to go around, and so maybe the religious life started to reflect the host culture more than it was showing the kingdom of God. Regardless, Saul was absolutely sincere in his convictions. He was devoted, and he was wrong. Jesus showed up in person and knocked him to the ground blind wrong. Wrong, but redeemable. That's the key. Saul was pretty far gone. He was actively, violently working against the movement of Jesus Christ. But in the midst of the evil that he was doing, we see evidence that he was misusing or abusing these good gifts that God had planted into him. See, sincerity and devotion are gifts. Jesus can certainly redeem that if they are properly applied. Saul wouldn't wilt when he was confronted with hardship or trial. He wouldn't break under the strain of traveling a great distance to accomplish a difficult goal. The raw material was good, and Jesus just needed to change the goal, maybe the motivation and the heart. How many of us are like that sometimes? Before we meet Jesus, we've got these traits that could be characteristics of gifts, but maybe we're misusing or abusing them. Maybe we have charm and we're using it to draw admirers for ourselves. But can God redeem that and let our charm draw people to him? Maybe we're stubborn and we set into a thing like a pit bull. What would happen if that thing that we lock into is compassion or justice? Can God redeem our determination in that way? 
Maybe we have a rough past that God has helped us to heal through. What if part of God's redemption is telling the story of God's healing work to bless others or walking with people who are facing something similar? I believe there's no wasted part of our story. God is a great recycler and he'll use every part of who we are to his glory because there is nothing that God cannot redeem. Our second lesson this morning is this. Being part of a redemption story often means overcoming fear. Being part of a redemption story often means overcoming fear. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem, and he's authorized by the leading priests to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take the message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In her book, Let's All Be Brave, Annie Downs writes that the unique expression of courage will be as unique to each of us as what we see when we look through a shared kaleidoscope. No two people are going to see the same thing when they look for a brave moment. God is that creative. It's not your job to see the same refraction of light and color on the wall. It's your job to be brave enough to look through the kaleidoscope, even if what you see surprises you. There were a lot of believers in Damascus at Saul's time. It's the reason why he was going there, to arrest and imprison followers of the way. But God didn't tell all the believers in Damascus to go to Saul. God called Ananias. Why? It's not because Ananias wasn't scared. He was. It's not because he didn't know. He knew the reputation. It's not because other Christians weren't brave. They surely were. It's because despite what he knew, Despite what he feared, Ananias trusted God's call and the importance of his response that was needed for the moment. So a guy that we hadn't heard of before, a guy that we don't hear about after this moment, is mentioned by name for starting Saul on a path to powerful, world-changing Christian discipleship because he chose to live in courage and faithfulness over fear. We don't get to pass off our cowardice as courage, but everyone's courage looks different. Our courage may look something like Ananias's courage, or it may look like the courage of the countless unnamed others who may have had the boldness in their hearts to pray with love that the spirit of even Saul the persecutor would turn towards Christ and receive new life. That's courage too. And when we let God use our lives courageously, we become a part of an incredible redemption story. Our third lesson this morning is this. A transformed life is powerful evidence of the resurrection. A transformed life is powerful evidence of the resurrection. So Ananias went and found Paul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and afterward he ate some food and regained his strength. 
So Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. Saul would come to be known as Paul, as we've heard throughout the service this morning, the apostle to the Gentiles and the champion for any of us who aren't Jewish converts to Christianity being a part of the body of Christ. Paul didn't hide from his past, but his past no longer defined him. He didn't forget about the story that brought him new life, but it did turn into his testimony. And hear how he describes the change he experienced. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they, too, can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. My friend was literally hanging from the sign that said Grant Street when the Charleston Police Department pulled up. I was able to walk away from the crime scene in progress all the way back to the fraternity house where I lived at the time before my friend spilled what wasn't too difficult to figure out because my car was also parked near our problematic intersection where this guy had already removed a stop sign. Even though they wouldn't find my prints on anything, I sure did drive him to the scene, and I did not in any way discourage him from the act of theft and criminal damage to property. That's what the courts called it in our plea agreement. Because apparently driving someone with the hopes, even subtle hopes, that you might get to take home what they are actively stealing is not just a bad idea, but enough to land you in the exact same hot water as the guy who was hanging from the sign. It was a misdemeanor act in 1995 with a Coles County court date of January 23rd of 1996 when our 19-year-old selves were sentenced to pay restitution and serve a year of court supervision. It marked a low point in a season of downward spiraling in my life. Restitution was paid. Court supervision was successfully completed. Lessons were certainly learned. And the criminal record is now old enough that I could easily have it expunged from my record. But I don't. And here's why. A few years ago, we brought our son Theo home from China at the age of four. He was legally ours and an American citizen the instant they opened his documents at Customs and Immigration at O'Hare. Still, we knew there was some benefit in completing what they call a readoption of a foreign orphan, which is really sensitive language, right? But this process comes with a state certificate of foreign birth, a document that's equivalent to a birth certificate, which is way easier for things like school registration. It's also easier to pull up paperwork just in case. And so we sought out a lawyer through our adoption social worker, and she referred us to a woman who specialized in the process. All we'd have to do is fill out some paperwork and then set a court date. So it was Tuesday, the 19th of July of 2016, when I once again walked into the Coles County Courthouse, this time with a son who was being claimed by a loving family. A child claimed by a loving family. 
That's kind of how the man who loves to be Theo's daddy felt on April 26th of 2003 when I surrendered my life to Jesus, asked for forgiveness for my sin, and invited the Holy Spirit to take control. That was 17 years ago today, and nothing's been the same since. The readoption experience was so meaningful anyhow, but I had tears in my eyes that day for several reasons. Leave it to God to bring me back to the scene of my sentencing 20 years later to show me just what kind of change Jesus had undertaken in my heart. Jesus did that. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. We may feel like our histories hold us back, but listen, it's actually a bit of a gift to walk with a limp or thorn in the flesh because of the all-sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. He makes us new, and our stories have the power to help other people see that grace as well. Jesus came to save sinners and chooses transformed lives to show God's transformational power. You may not get a brand new name like Saul did as a result of God's work, but you get a place in a loving family and new life that is true, abundant, and eternal. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the power of resurrection. That is not a far off and someday thing, but it's something that we get to experience today. You're not waiting for us to clean up our acts so we can come to you. We come to you. We are loved by you. And as a result, our hearts are purified and made clean. God, thank you so much for the gift of grace. The gift that we don't deserve but is given to us so freely. It's paid for with the precious blood of Jesus. God, we are thankful that when we come to you, no matter our state, no matter how far we think we've gone, there is no distance that you cannot make up. Lord, help us to offer our hearts and lives to you, that they may be made brand new. And as a result of our hearts being transformed, people will see your grace, your strength, your power, and your love. All these things we ask in the powerful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.